The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. And each and every week here on The Profile, we're interviewing a different Christian about their life, faith and testimony. Later on today, I will be speaking to the worship leader and church leader, Tim Hughes, not just about Gas Street Birmingham and about worship, but also about COVID-19, how it's affected the church and how we should be thinking about opening up again when this pandemic finally ends and all the implications theologically and for us as Christians. So lots to discuss with Tim Hughes coming up later on. But before we get there, we wanted to bring you a special show which originally aired over the Easter period. This is a quite remarkable and unusual story we're bringing you today. So I'm going to pass over to Julia Fisher, who is presenting the first section of the show. And she's been in conversation with Terry Goodyear. Let's listen in. Hello, this is Julia Fisher, and in this special Easter programme, I'll be considering the question of reconciliation. We often hear the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But, you may be asking, what if I've done something so bad God couldn't possibly forgive me? For example, what if I'd murdered my husband? Well, Terry Goodyear did just that. Twenty years ago, whilst very drunk, she stabbed her husband John, and he died a few hours later. Terry served not only a prison sentence for her crime, but she also served another, longer sentence of not being able to forgive herself, yet alone believe that God could forgive her. But today, several years later, she has found peace of mind and been able to rebuild her shattered life. She was born in the East End of London, a true Cockney, and one of two children from a happy and stable family background. Listening to her story, you'll quickly realise she didn't much enjoy school. In fact, she couldn't wait to leave and get out to work. Bit rebellious like most people my age. (laughs) Um, I I just couldn't wait to leave school. When the time came to leave school, I was at that door. Because I, I knew, well, I'd already had a job to start doing hairdressing, which is my trade. But that wasn't my first option. My first option was acting. But my father wasn't impressed with actors or actresses, so he put me off, really. So you went into hairdressing? Yeah. How did you meet your husband? In a disco, because I loved dancing. Did you know him well? Not at the beginning. I didn't really like him much. I thought Because um, I didn't realise at that time that he just was getting over and recovering from a very serious accident. So he had a lot of scars and a very bad limp at the time so I thought he was a bit of a gangster so my impression of him wasn't very good at the time so but then then I got to know him and we started to go out on a regular basis every week we'd go out and then the relationship grew and we started to become a couple and it grew from there and then we got engaged I mean in the I mean we're talking in the 60s and the courtships in those days were quite long. I mean, it's not like today. They meet and immediately it all, it all happens, doesn't it? But in those days, we we went out for a long time. So you knew him years. quite well before you yes, married him? Yes, we did, him. yeah. We, we knew each other quite well. You knew who you were marrying? Oh, yeah. Lovely guy. A lovely personality. He was a real gentleman. He knew how to treat a woman. 
he would open doors, he would help you on with your coat, pull out chairs. He was a real gentleman and he had a brilliant sense of humour. So all the qualities I looked for a man, he, he had. So, yeah, we gelled very well together. So what went wrong? We got married and um, I wanted a big family. A big family. I don't know why, but I just loved children. And we started to live um, with his mum. I mean, because his dad died and left him a fairly big place. And I mean, I wasn't eager to live with in-laws. I mean, I'm not an in-law-y type of person then. But because I wanted to please him, I thought, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll give it a try for a year. And it didn't work out. And in that year, we, we were trying for children, but nothing was happening and normally when you come off a pill, because I was on the pill, um, you, you normally fall pregnant straight away, and I didn't. So I went and had some tests and found that I had a blocked tube. The operation went wrong, everything went wrong after that. A lot of things happened, obviously, with families. When, when you have family problems, you tend to s suppress them uh, in drink or in other areas or in other ways. I turned to drink more. I mean, I, I did like a drink, but I found that drink helped me to keep my emotions, what I thought, were in control. And I thought, like, the answer will be at the bottom of the bottle, and it isn't. After a relatively short time of being married then, you mm. found you couldn't have children. That's right. You were yeah. heartbroken. Yeah, I was very disappointed because it seems when you really want something and you look around, there was babies everywhere. Everywhere I looked, there was couples having babies. When I went in that operation, there was people in there having babies. And, you know, you think, well, I only want to... I mean, I was even got to the point where one baby would do. I was that desperate to have children. And even that wasn't happening. And John was the type of person that if he couldn't have his own children, he definitely wasn't going to adopt anybody else's. So that option, which I was trying to go down, was out the window. So I was quite depressed at the time. Would you say that you became an alcoholic? Yeah, I was on the verge of becoming an alcoholic because I was drinking quite a lot, had a lot of family problems, and uh, John's work was folding up. It was as though everything that I dreamed about and wanted was slowly grinding to a halt and it was all out of my control. But saying that, I, I had a very good Christian friend at the time who I'd met years before I'd, I'd met John who had given me the gospel and I'd always kept in touch with her. So I used to pour my heart out to her, tell her my problems and I don't know, she just had something special but nevertheless, things got worse before they, they got better. Yeah, they certainly did. What happened? Just, the fateful evening was... I mean, we always had company back at our, at our place. It was just the done thing. They'd always come back to Terry and John's, either for a late drink in the evenings or weekends. We always had company. And it was on this particular day. We'd uh, gone to the, our local pub like we did every Sunday. We had company back at our place. I had dinner more drink and then we went back to the pub in that evening and it was during the course of that time 
And at this point, I don't remember a lot because I was at that point where I'd gone past oblivion. And apparently we were sitting in the corner talking in depth. And then John left the pub. And the next minute I was making my way out of the pub. I got into my car and I proceeded to drive out of the car park and drive myself home in that state. It's an absolute miracle, really, that I even got home. So, Terry, you got home. It must have been quite late by then. You'd had dinner, you'd been out to the pub. You you were very drunk. Yeah. What happened when you got home? I don't remember much after that. I mean, I remember John, he was laying on the settee, and I remember him sitting up and telling me that I'd stabbed him. I mean, this is a man that I loved and worshipped. I mean, I just worshipped the ground he walked on, and and for him to face me with that, statement that I'd stabbed him and I knew by his face that it was true I mean you just know by the look of a person's face that the statement they've made is not funny it's the truth and I remember turning around immediately phoning for help phoning the police and the next minute there was just all people coming in police ambulance and that would be the last time I would see John why were you so angry with him were you angry with him? Um, I must have been because it, it's accumulation of disappointments over the the short time. Mummy was married for three years and all the dreams that I had about married life because I'm very much into marriage, 100% working. So all the dreams that you want for yourself were just evaporating and the frustrations, disappointments mixture of drink and they just evaporated. You gradually sobered up and the awful reality of what you had done came home. Yeah, I I was taken, it wasn't until I was taken to the local police station and put into a cell Then I realised what I'd done and I thought, well, that's it. The marriage is over now. And, you know, you're trying to go through the day. Why? What happened? You know, I couldn't understand what had happened. Why would I stab him? What was the reason? Did Um, he die immediately? No, he didn't. It wasn't until the early hours of the morning the police came and told me. Oh, it was awful. I mean, because you could... I could hear the footsteps coming down the corridor... And the the door opening and them just making, the police just making a statement that this is good year. Come to tell you that your husband died three o'clock this morning, and I thought, oh, I was just devastated, and they just shut the door and left me. And in that time, the devastation turned to shock, and it was as though I would be I'd been plunged in uh, into a bucket of ice. Well, my emotions had just just uh, evaporated out of me. Were you held in custody before yes. the trial? I was for a short time. When I was given a statement, I didn't call for my mum and dad or anybody but my friend who'd witnessed to me about Jesus because I know then, at that time, I know that only she could help me. And I was held in custody for a short time, charged with murder and then taken to Holloway Prison. And that's when my friend came and visited me. 
you then had to go to court, presumably, and yes. you were sentenced. Yeah. How long were you in prison? I got three years, which in itself was a miracle because it, the murder charge was reduced to manslaughter and through manslaughter. I mean, I could have got longer. I really could have got a lot longer, but I didn't. I got three years, which was an incredible miracle in itself. And from that, I got a parole after 13 months. Presumably, though, Terry, prison life must have been a very uncomfortable and very unhappy experience for you. It's very frightening because you don't, you have got no idea what prison life is like. I mean, even walking into reception can be very humiliating when you're signed in. And obviously they have to make sure there's, you know, if you've got any scars on your body or tattoos, so you have to strip naked and it's very humiliating. And you don't know what's going on. I mean, I was still in a state of shock. I'd not long come off a medication. I still wasn't quite all together with the whole system. And then just placed into a cell. And there I began my sentence. You became a Christian. How did that happen? When I was in the first custody, when I was very first taken into custody and I called for my friend, because she'd only ever witnessed to me and hadn't gone any further than witnessing you know, about prayer and receiving Jesus as your saviour, all I remember her doing was when she came to Holloway and she only had a, a five minutes, and this five minutes was so precious because God worked a miracle in that five minutes, was kept telling me, she kept telling me how God loved me and forgave me, God's forgiveness and to to accept him. I can't remember all the conversations, but I, I can always remember the anxiety on her face. She was so anxious for me to get hold of what she was saying to me. Now, she's talking to me and I'm in the pits of despair. I'm in the pits of the pits. But I knew by a look on her face that what she was saying was the most important thing I needed to get hold of. So when I went back to my cell, I didn't say any special prayer because I didn't know how to pray. But I just said, well, here I am. Take over. And that was it. So the depression that you were enveloped by must have been like a fog. That's why it was. It was so dark. Something started to happen. Yeah, there was no... I mean, for me, I just felt the same. There was no fireworks or angels singing at all because I was still in... I mean, obviously, I was grieving for John and still can't get to grips of what I've done. But I got seven months bail, which was also another miracle. The seven months was the time when I really came into great revelation of God's love. And also at that time, the friends that I had had all left, rejected me. So I'd not only lost the man I loved, I'd lost the friends as well. So I was totally on my own. I'd lost everything, even my home. And But the seven months, with the seven months was very precious because at that time my friend and, and all of her church that prayed that I would get bail were able to love me, pray for me and bring me back into that place of getting my mind back because I was in a state of turmoil, you know, and... You must have hated yourself, Terry. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't believe I'd done it. I couldn't believe that I'd 
I could have done such a terrible thing to somebody I love so much. So you served your sentence. You came out to bring the story up to date. What are you doing now? At the moment, I'm working. Have you been able to rebuild your life? Yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, all that you lose in life, I mean, with God, I mean, God's replaced everything. He's given me a new home. He's given me new friends. He's actually rebuilt me as a person. He's put me back together again. He mended the broken heart that I had and all my emotions. He's restored. He's given me new friends. Do you feel forgiven? Oh, yeah. I do now, but it took me a long time. It took me many years to feel that. Because I think most of the time when you do something as bad as that, you, you find it hard to believe that God can forgive you and to forgive myself. And I remember a friend of mine saying that you can't, if God has forgiven you, how can you not forgive yourself? That's, that's sort of like smacking God in the face, really, saying you're not good enough to forgive. And it was from that day on that I began to receive that forgiveness. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Terry, you've come to accept that God has forgiven you. You've learnt to forgive yourself. Yes. But presumably there are people who still feel very bitter towards you. How have you coped with that? Yes, at, at the very beginning I found that very hard. But as time has gone on and I've grown in the Lord, I can understand that because if I wasn't saved myself, if I was in the same position as those people that haven't got forgiveness for me, I'd be the same. I would be exactly the same. I, would, I wouldn't forgive anybody that had taken someone away from me in an act of, of killing them. So I, I accept that. And I just pray that someday that they, they would come to an understanding of the love of God or even receive Jesus as their saviour so that they can understand. Because anger and forgiveness causes so many other things within you. It can bring on so many different illnesses. And it just brings death, really. So, I can, I, yeah, I can understand that. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I am Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian mag and we publish interviews, reviews. We've got some fantastic columnists, Rain Collectives, Chris Llewellyn, Jeff Lucas, Sarah Lumgare and more. 
And it's that magazine that sponsors this show. Premier Christianity magazine. Why not subscribe now and get full online access? Plus the monthly print magazine. The latest offer is available right now at premierchristianity.com. That's a brand new website we just launched a couple of weeks ago. premierchristianity.com. So why not check that out? You're about to hear my conversation with the worship leader and church leader, Tim Hughes. Tim Hughes is a leader at Gas Street Church in Birmingham. He's also well known for penning a variety of worship songs, including Happy Day, Here I Am to Worship, Beautiful One, Jesus Saves, God of Justice be my everything and so much more and while we do touch on the subject of worship not least because tim hughes has a brand new book out called why worship but we're also talking about issues related to church and covid19 for the past year many churches across the country have not been meeting physically but instead have been live streaming their services over youtube or holding zoom meetings And of course, as government regulations change, there have been variances to that. But as a general rule, a lot of churches have taken to using online media in a fresh way. And I wanted to ask Tim about what that's meant for him personally at Gas Street Church, but also what that means for worship and what church leaders should be thinking about as we head into the future. So there's all that and more coming up in this conversation with Tim Hughes. Tim is a previous guest on The Profile. And if you want to hear past interviews we've done with him, just head to The Profile as a podcast. You can access it now at premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile or just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from. I should say this interview has already been published in Premier Christianity magazine as well. So you can access it that way too. All right, without any further ado, let's listen to my conversation with the worship leader and church leader, Tim Hughes. Hi, great to be with you. It's great to chat. Last time we connected, we were talking about the UK blessing. And yes. I think at the time it had just hit a million views. I mean, goodness knows how many how many millions it's now on on YouTube. Yeah. Just reflecting back on that, um, quite a remarkable moment, wasn't it, where a worship song really did go viral. I mean, I can't remember a song going viral online to that extent in, in recent years. What's, mm. Now that we've got some distance for a few months, what's, mm. what's your reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was took us all by surprise. I mean, I think you hoped it would connect with people, but not on the scale which it did. I, I think um, it's really hard to kind of grapple with this stuff, but for, there was a sense of God's spirit resting on it. <clears throat> and I think what, what happened is, Obviously, it captured the unity, all these different streams, denominations, people, ages, gender, you know, coming together to sing these beautiful words, this blessing. I think, you know, God says he commands a blessing and brothers and sisters dwell in harmony. There's something of that. But but I, I think God just used it to minister encouragement to people. And as I said at the time, and just heard this more and more, also increasingly from people who wouldn't, you know, say that they had a faith, finding themselves weeping, <laughs> as they watched it. And I think there was something of, um, yeah, just God connecting with people, that message that I love you, you know, my heart is for you. Um, And so I think God just used it to encourage uh, people at a time of real challenge and testing. So it's it's been really special to see how God's used it. It's like this, this one thing that we as Christians loved and were even known for this one thing of singing was ripped away from us almost. Well, a whole year ago now really yeah and and sung worship really has not been the same i just want to boil this down though to how this how this works out practically so you've got a lot of churches now where a, a worship band or a worship leader will still go to the building and they will be filmed yeah. and then there'll be yeah. people at home watching on a, on a tv screen so you're, you're a pastor you're a church leader 
is your encouragement to your congregation at home, stand up, lift your hands, respond in yeah. the usual kind of way. Is, is that what you're urging people into almost kind of replicating what would, what they'd normally do on a Sunday or, or do you see it differently? How, how, how does that work? Well, it's, it's a bit of both. I think that there, there's a real encouragement that needs to happen around. Don't just sit back and watch, you know, you're, we're not watching Downton Abbey or, I don't know what you're into, Sam. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this isn't a chance just to sort of consume. Yeah. We are here to worship. And it's just reframing it. You know, we are the people of God. Church is always about being a family. Um, church isn't about watching something. It's about connecting together. Um, we have this gift of technology. That means I might be sat in my you know, living room here in Birmingham and you're the other side of Birmingham in your you know bedroom. <clears throat> but we're still by the spirit of God connected together and we're going to worship. And I want to encourage you, you know, we will often say, why don't you stand just to shift people away from the sitting back and what, you know, and sing. And, and, and then this is the thing that we've loved seeing. We've really encouraged and it's been brilliant is um, we predominantly stream through YouTube and then you've got all the comments you can have. And so we, 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 we run our gatherings now live. So we'll encourage, you know, put a comment up, you know, worship emoji or what do you feel God's saying or what are you experiencing? And actually, when you're gathered together, you obviously you hear people singing together. So that's the sense of this congregation. We're in it together. But actually, through the comments, you can see. So, you know, oh, so-and-so has put a little prayer emoji up and you're reminded that, oh, that person's a part of our community. And another person said, you know, I got a new job this week. And it's like, yes, praise God. Well done, you know. And so we're actually connecting in worship through the comments. Yes. That go up. So we, we've been encouraging that and then also feeding those in um, and allowing that to lead our worship as well. So yeah. that's how we've tried to encourage community. That's great to hear. And, and our church has done very similarly with that. At the same time, my own personal feeling is, is that while that stuff is great, personally, mm. I don't feel like it's it's enough in the sense that it's what we'd be used to if we were physically in the same building. But this, this opens up the debate, doesn't it, of when all this is over, um, do we need to really lean into physical gatherings still matter, even if we still do the whole digital online thing? Have you got have you yeah. thought much about I mean, that? Well, just two things. I mean, the first thing, and I've been saying this for a little while, I, I think one of the roles of a worship pastor, and I don't think we talk about this anywhere near enough, is not just to lead a great set of worship on a Sunday. It's to curate a culture of worshippers who actually Monday on the way to work are finding their hearts filled with thanksgiving and you know when something wonderful happens their response is Jesus, thank you, I love you. As they're on a walk, you know, they're kind of just, enjoying a sense of god's presence with them that that's what we need to do and i think when we just sing the biggest and the best four songs out in the world every week i don't know if we're doing that so one of the things i want to and we're having to do this in this season of actually you've got to learn to take responsibility for your own worshiping life and expression you know you've got to be someone who who finds ways to read the word and to think about who god is and to find ways of expressing that so i I do think this has been really important in terms of a discipleship thing of you can't just enjoy the big thrill of a big gathering. We've got to take responsibility for our own worship. That said, I, I do think if from, from the, the Bible I read, even the fact, you know, that Jesus, the incarnation, he stepped in 
to the mess of humanity. He rubbed shoulders with people. He connected. They would sing together. They would break bread together. They would eat together. I, I, I think um, some of the teaching I'm hearing about, you know, the church is going to shift everything online. I, I would feel very, very nervous of that. I think technology and online is a brilliant tool, but you cannot be being face to face with people um, and I, th I think also, you know, worship isn't simply this kind of vertical us and God. When we worship as a family, we're encouraging one another in our worship. That's why it talks about in Ephesians, you know, we're bringing a psalm, a hymn, a spiritual song. You know, that, that's what worship should do. Our, our worship, we should be feeding one another in our worship. And so I, I think the gathered expression, however big or small that is, is, is really, really important. Because what I love about when I worship is I look around and think, oh, I'm a part of this with a whole bunch of friends and family. Look at this eclectic group. And we're here together saying, Jesus, your Lord. That, that, again, there's something spiritual and powerful that happens there. And this reminder of we're in this together. I'm not alone. I'm yeah. not alone. And I think that's such an important part of our worship. We're not worshiping alone. Again, when we talk about this in the book, when we gather to worship, we're gathering with the heavens who are already worshiping, you know, four living creatures the 24 elders the thousands upon thousands multitudes of angels and actually we, we need to just shift our thinking from it's my little moment with god to gosh we're part of this cosmic expression of heaven and earth gathering together before jesus the, the one who's worthy we we actually just this month at premier christianity magazine our new front cover um is is quite something if i may say so myself obviously i didn't i didn't design it the designer did but it's it's based on some of those visions in ezekiel and revelation of these winged creatures covered in eyes wow. um and um it's all we've, we've done that cover because matt redman who uh as you know is a good friend of yours and has written many mm. many christian worship songs he's written mm. a piece for us about the holiness of god and specifically about worship matt redman says in the mm. piece that without that holiness of god you can't even call it worship as, as you say we need to understand and capture this this majesty majesty of god i mean matt went quite far in the piece in in saying mm. that some of our worship songs have been a bit too me focused which mm. i thought was quite quite a challenging thing for for someone who's written so many worship songs to kind of own up to really and say have have we gone a bit wrong on this what was your reaction in in reading that article three yeah no i mean i i think that, that there's a fair critique i mean i I think what I'm seeing in, in our church, the songs that really are connecting are the songs that just, they just tell the story of what Jesus has done mm -hmm. on the cross, death and resurrection, you know, glorious ascension, uh, the promise of his return. Those songs of truth are the things that actually, they anchor us, they're foundations to build our lives upon. Um, I do think there's a, a really important and special place in our worship of, this is me coming before you, God, um, bringing all that I am, experiencing all that you are, um, you know, we, we, the, the, the place of intimacy. And, and I think that's what, you know, Matt and I both um, grew up through Soul Survivor and it's always been such a key part. It's the um, friendship and the fear. Yeah. It's the awe and the intimacy. And that's the beautiful mystery of the Christian faith. You know, it's the only uh, faith that actually you can know and be loved and cherished by the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're not killing ourselves to try and please and impress him. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I do think um, the church uh, needs to regain a sense of the otherness, the power, the transcendence of God. Um, again, it, it begin, I think when we begin to 
reclaim holiness in our worship, we begin to regain a sense of, you know, our, our lives need to be biblically based. You know, so many are we're being shifted by culture, being led by what feels maybe right. Where actually, no, we, we were Jesus centered people and uh, and we, we've got to be a bible based people and so I, I think these themes of holiness um again we, we've seen this a lot in, in our church repentance i think because of this pandemic a real shaking there's a sense of god we, we want to get right with you and we, we, we're seeing areas where we've got casual and apathetic and compromised and um i feel like the more we've been teaching we're in a series on revelation the more we're teaching about um centrality of christ and surrender and reverence people are engaging responding so i i do think um there's a lot to be learned from reclaiming holiness in our mm. worship yeah your book is called why worship uh which mm. is a massive question i imagine there's <laughs> lots and lots and lots of different answers to that and obviously people will have to buy the book to find out all the answers Absolutely. Um, but is is there one or two i'm particularly interested in any answers that that perhaps people may not be expecting that might catch us by surprise or just a fresh angle um on mm. on that on the answer to that question the kind of the book has these themes and threads you know um who is it that we worship how do we worship what happens when we worship I, I i think one of the things i keep coming back to is um i mean there's obviously that we're created we're designed for worship for this relationship with god you know he was perfect god the father god the son god the holy spirit unity community and yet out of the overflow of that he wanted the people to enjoy and share with him in that um so there's a huge amount of that i i think one of the other things that runs through the book and you know different authors graham kendrick and dr Dow johnson and lou fellingham and noel robinson and dr helen morris others but this real importance that worship is transformational to worship is to change. And I actually kind of end the book. There's this um, uh, radio interview um, back during the second world war from William Temple, who was the archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And he said this, that this world can be changed um, from, so this world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing. And that is the worship of Jesus Christ. And I just love that vision. Now, he's not saying a song, <laughs> a song about Jesus can change the world, but actually a people putting Jesus first, living lives that just overflow out of the celebration and joy of who he is that lead to radical discipleship and holiness, completely different way of thinking around sexuality and around money and around care for those in need and around purity, all of these different things. Uh, that begins to change not only us but the world around us so i i think um uh, and and again there are so many organizations that can do incredible things in terms of social justice but it's the church that actually puts jesus into that question you know amazing to care for your physical needs but you have eternal needs and you have a deep ache in your heart that can be filled by the person of jesus christ so um i think that theme of just the wild transformation that comes out of worship is 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 very strong do you think that um we as christians are having to become more and more used to sort of standing out you mentioned this just now about th think you mentioned passing things like sexuality but lots of other things where actually mm. if you're going to say yeah i follow jesus and yeah i follow the bible and yeah i'm not going to go on what culture thinks but i'm actually dedicated to this man jesus it's like 
nowadays in 2021, if that's your position, you are probably going to stand out from the culture a little bit more than you did even 20, 30 years ago. Are you finding that just pastorally and trying to help people through this and say, look, following Jesus is not the easy route on this stuff. You're actually going to have to believe some things, stand up for some things, maybe yeah. even lose some friends over positions you're taking. Is, is that something that you think is beginning to dawn on people a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I said we're in this series on Revelation and I was just speaking on the, the letter to the church in Smyrna and it's only two of the letters Jesus never offers a rebuke and this is one of them and basically they are under incredible pressure and persecution because they won't say Caesar is Lord. They're poor because businesses won't employ them because they um, are offending the people of Rome because of their worship of Jesus. Um, and physically they are up against it. They're struggling. Um, and Jesus says, not I'm going to sweep in and sort it all out for you. He says, be faithful unto death. Yeah. And he says, you, I see your poverty, but you're rich. You know, there's a crown of life coming. So I do think there's a, an eternal perspective. And I, I do think um, following Jesus should be costly you know, following Jesus should lead us to being misunderstood. And that's painful. Um, I mean, following Jesus is how do we love people, um, care for people, be really sensitive and kind and merciful to people. But ultimately, what are we anchoring our way of living on? The world or the words of Jesus Christ. And I think it is one or the other. I think there's a there's a temptation for um again, both worship leaders and church leaders, there can be a temptation just, just to really look forward to kind of quote unquote, getting back to normal, right? Of us mm. all being in one room together. And we all yeah. long for that. Of course we do. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I think leaders are recognizing God wants us to learn in this season. And so we mm. shouldn't just crave what came before. Mm. The million dollar question, of course, is okay, but practically what might that mean? Um, no clear answers. I mean, I think... One of the things we look about this, look at this in the book, Why Worship. There's um, in uh, West Sussex in a state called Nep, it's three and a half thousand acre estate. And um, in 2001, after years of kind of intensively farming the land, you know, they were struggling financially and they just kind of slightly at the end of themselves. And so they embarked on this project called Rewilding, where basically you just let everything grow you know the ecosystem just goes where it needs to go and much freedom as possible and what they found over the years of not really farming or watching the land is all of this incredible life uh you know so many um new species came back um you know they they uh, extremely rare species like nightingales peregrine falcons purple emperor butterflies um just beautiful things begin to grow and actually then it became incredibly popular people were fascinated people started coming to visit they started to make more money than they were previously making and many other farms are now set upon this similar rewilding project in fact david attenborough has been talking about this idea of rewilding I think the church needs a rewilding project where uh, I think some churches and I, we've been thinking about this, you know, we can try and hold things quite tightly. I think we're thinking a lot around all the different people coming on a Sunday, the different things around kids work and, you know, um, new Christians coming, non-Christians coming, the style of teaching, the kind of worship, keeping everyone happy, you know, 
working hard to keep bums on seats. And I just think we need to sort of let go of some of the fixed parameters. You know, I've been to so many events where you lead worship and you're given 17 minutes, 30 seconds to lead worship. You know, and I, I just, I think we need to prayerfully plan and consider and order and worship is extremely important as Paul talks about in Corinthians. But I just think we need to hold things much more lightly. I think we need to kill um, this obsession with excellence. You know, I, I think we shouldn't do things poorly in, in a, you know, in a um, lazy fashion because we can't be bothered. But, uh, but I think if, if, if we're pushing just this incredible elite professional few on a stage, I think we've seen what it brings in terms of a worshiping people, you know, that we can have these great experiences on Sunday in a church, but it's not affecting the choices we're making on a Saturday night in a pub. Um, I, I think we need to allow um, more space for the spirit to speak, more of the prophetic, um, more space to hear from people in our church. And I think as leaders, we need to be much better at connecting what we're doing with what we're living and how we're living. I, you know, I think we need to be t hearing much more from um, what does it look like to live your worship as a teacher? What does it look like to live your worship as a student, as a, you know, running a business, working in a hospital? Um, I think these connection points, again, I think so often we put all of this energy into this one hour, 30 minute event. Um, and it's often dislocated and disconnected from the world we're living in. Um, so I, I think in terms of the rewilding, and, and we, we'd started to do a few of these things. And I just want to see much more of this where we would at times move the band off the stage and put the band in the middle of the congregation and have a microphone where other people could come and lead a song. And we, we saw God do some amazing things or space for people to come and share prophetic words that could then be appropriately filtered through the, the Sundays. Or I, I just think um, that there's a lot more that needs to be done. The other thing is I, I just think churches, uh, we really need to get serious about this worship and prayer, which doesn't necessarily happen on that Sunday, but running through our expression throughout the week points for us to pray and bring stuff before the lord and i think um, i think one of the things if um again and if we're going to learn from what we've seen in places like asia and you know china and the persecuted church you know since we often get the americans in to speak at our events but they've got something that we need and it's it's perseverance in prayer and it's passion um and i think that's what we need in the uk you know perseverance in prayer um just an utter devotion to jesus in prayer and and, and so I, I think that's one of the things i see stirring up but let's not say oh great okay covid's finished death rates are down back to normal i think what does it look like for our churches to be houses of prayer um so that doesn't in any way <laughs> answer your question but but i just think thinking way more than a brilliant sunday service um, and neat, tidy, four songs, 30-minute preach, quick prayer, off we go. It's, we've got to create space for God to lead us, to listen, not to be afraid of silence and to see how our Sundays are propelling us into the week. You know, when the Spirit of God is poured out, what does the Spirit of God do? It propels us out as it did at Pentecost. Um, I want to see more of that in the church. So that's what I'm thinking about. That was my conversation with the worship leader and church leader, Tim Hughes. He's based at Gas Street in Birmingham. He's also got a new book out called Why Worship, so why not check that out as well? 
And as I said at the beginning, that interview was originally published in Premier Christianity magazine. Check out our brand new website and subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. If you've enjoyed the show today, then why not check out our amazing back catalogue of interviews, well over a hundred different church leaders, politicians, sports stars, people in the media, all Christians, all with an amazing story to tell of their testimony and what God has done in their life. Get those inspirational interviews and conversations now through The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. That's all we got time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Take care.